Herb Albert, the team on the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Uh, <clears throat> my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Dave Cameron, making a special midweek appearance um, in order to discuss the various league divisional series. As, as I speak on Friday, uh, the first of four games has begun. The Pittsburgh Pirates and the St. Louis Cardinals have started in St. Louis. Lance Lynn is currently pitching to Andrew McCutcheon. This is the very beginning of that game. Not much earlier today, I spoke with Dave Cameron and asked him questions, uh, either one or two questions, about each of the divisional series uh, that is being played today and that is being played at all, is how that worked. And what follows are his answers, essentially. So that's it. That's it. It's uh, it's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Are you have a dog situation going on? Well, I was just giving her some water. She, oh, okay. she let me know that she was thirsty. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, I read over your uh, part of your chat from last night before I had to go to bed, and there seemed to be uh, like every third or fourth comment was uh, dog-related. Well, did you see the game? <laughs> there wasn't really much baseball-related content for the, to share with people. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it was it was a bit of a difficult game. Uh, well, I guess well, they kind a- of both AJ were. Burnett, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of in terms of uh, aesthetic pleasure, I mean, if you were a Cardinals fan or um, if you were a Dodgers fan, either of the games were probably pretty great. But generally, yeah. as a neutral supporter, it was not a lot there. I mean, Adam Wainwright's curveball was awesome to watch. There were like individual performances that were neat, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like drama or. Uh, Playoff intensity, it did, it didn't, it wasn't right. Right. Okay. So, so listen, uh, uh, I've probably mentioned in the introduction, but I will restate here just because, uh, so that you and I are on the same page. You, uh, what we're doing is a, uh, just a sort of brief, a, a brief podcast episode, uh, f- um, relative to where we are right now in the playoffs. Yes. Uh, I'm going to talk even faster than normal. So okay. Say just as much in less time. Okay. Well, I have a plan, which is uh, I did um, uniquely. I did a little bit of preparation, and I've I've crafted at least one question uh, with regard to each of the playoff series, and okay. uh, I thought I'd let that guide us. Right. Can we also maybe talk about Dusty Baker getting fired? Because that's newsy. <clears throat> um, yeah, Did we can do that. For that. I didn't do that. No, but let's do that. Let's start there. He got yeah. fired. He got fired. Yes. Um. Why would it? Why would a coach? Whose team almost got to the playoffs and who has a long uh, reputation, who has, has a reputation and has coached for a long time. Why would he get fired right now? I mean, specifically, well, why would he get fired if his name was Dusty Baker? Yeah, I think the uh, the season ended on a very poor note for the Reds. They lost five in a row in the regular season. Uh, they had home field advantage for the wild card game. They frittered that away. Um, getting swept by the Pirates at home to end the year. They lost two in a row to the Mets before that. And then they got waxed by the Pirates in that, in that, uh, elimination game. So, they lost six in a row to end the season. Um, they didn't look very good doing it. Uh, but I think more than that, there was a, uh, significant disconnect between, uh, Dusty Baker and his vision for what good players look like and, and the Reds' management. I mean, the, you know, Dusty Baker, pretty well known at this point, not a huge fan of walks. Uh, really prefers guys who drive in runs and swing the bat. And the Reds built their offense around Shinsuchu and Joey Votto, two extremely high walk hitters. Uh, this is not 
a Dusty Baker style team. I don't think it's too much of a secret that Dusty Baker, uh, would have preferred Joey Votto to take a different approach at the plate. The Reds have invested $225 million in Votto over the next 10 years. And I think it's probably an untenuous situation to have a manager who thinks their franchise player is not very good. Okay, so, um, Dusty Baker was there before Joey Votto. Uh, yeah, yeah. Was Dusty Baker there before, well, Jockety? Uh, that I don't believe. I believe Jockety brought Dusty Baker in. Um, okay, so why, why would you bring in, um, um, why would you bring in a manager who, uh, may not be the best to support? Or is it because maybe the ideas in the front office have, have changed slowly? I think the front office has probably evolved a little bit, um, and I think also, um, Baker is good at some of the player uh, management issues mm-hmm. that aren't related to strategy or figuring out how to value different events. Uh, and, you know, there's different times where different managers will be needed. Maybe early in his career, the, the Reds really felt like they needed a, a loving, nurturing father type who could really grow these players. And, and now they feel like they have grown these players, and now they need an effective strategist who understands uh, how to fill out a lineup card and not to hit Zach Cozart second. And, uh, you know, they might just feel like they're at a different point and they need a different skill set from their manager. Right. And uh, actually, I'll add, uh, it appears as though uh, Bus- Baker was hired a year before Jockety. Okay. Well, yeah. there you go. So there's uh, another. Facts <laughs> being introduced. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. So the, uh, so I guess that's a strange situation. Does one assume that, um, does one assume that, that Baker will have a job uh, within the next calendar year? No. I think Dusty Baker was going to be a TV guy. He's perfect for uh, what television analysts want. I could see him on ESPN or Fox or TBS uh, very soon, uh, maybe even as soon as the World Series. Uh, and I think that's probably his next profession. Just because he's, what, he's charismatic and yep. and everyone, right. li- everyone likes him, right? I mean, he's a very likable personality. He's open-minded. Uh, you know, I think he... Um, fills a role that, you know, maybe these, these analysts don't generally have. I mean, I think if you watch the TBS pregame show, it's very white. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a, it's a lot of white dudes sitting around in suits. I think Dusty Baker can bring a different perspective and, and networks really like that kind of, um. I mean, the breadth, I guess. Breadth of yes, coverage. Yeah. Right, yeah. Alright. Uh, very good. Uh, let's, uh, alright. So we've talked about a team that has been eliminated from the playoffs. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go in order of the schedule uh, for today's games. Uh, for today's games, the first one is Pittsburgh at St. Louis. Um, <clears throat> you actually, the, as an interesting point I thought was brought up during your chat uh, uh, last night during the during the first uh, Pirates Cardinals game, which was at what point, or if at all, uh, do you give up on a playoff game? Uh, right. Uh, there was a question early on. Uh, you know, do do the Pirates just give up right now uh, in this game? And uh, you know, I don't know necessarily what that would look like, but you know, bring in some subs or whatever. Um, at a certain point, when they're still even even moderately close, that that doesn't seem to be the case. But then, then they brought in Gianmar Gomez, which might be akin to breaking to to giving up. Yeah, I mean, I think at uh, one point in the third inning, when it was four nothing, the bases were loaded with no outs. The Cardinals' win probability was already. 95%. And, uh, you don't, you don't necessarily think down four runs early in the game that you're, you're 5% chance of winning, but that's the reality because it was pretty likely the Cardinals were going to score more runs than they did. And, you know, 7 nothing, it's, it definitely seems a little bit out of reach, barring some kind of miraculous comeback. I think the, you're not going to put in the subs in the, in a, you know, take out, you know, Andrew McCutcheon in a playoff game. Uh, what you are going to do is make sure you don't expend, uh, your valuable resources that are, 
um, in your bullpen. And so I think what what Clint Hurdle made the decision to do is try and see if A.J. Burnett could get him through that inning, uh, because if he couldn't, that game was probably lost anyway, and then he wouldn't have to use Mark Melanson and Tony Watson and, and his more valuable bullpen guys who can't pitch every game in, in the playoffs. Uh, and, you know, if, if Burnett could have gotten him out of it, then uh, maybe they could have gotten a couple more innings out of him. So he took a bit of a gamble, uh, and I think it, it didn't work out in his favor. Uh, I think at some point you do have to say, uh, you know, let's go get him tomorrow, and, and just letting John Mar Gomez uh, soak up the rest of those innings wasn't a terrible idea. But I think if I was Clint Hurdle, I probably would have been a little more aggressive in trying to salvage game one and gotten Burnett out of there a little earlier. That that would have been your that would have been your tact, do you think? I think once it became clear that AJ Burnett couldn't throw strikes yesterday, and walking AJ Burnett or walking Adam Wainwright to start the third inning when his command had already been pretty shaky, we even noted in the first inning that he was throwing a bunch of slurvy breaking balls and didn't really seem to have command of his off-speed stuff. Uh, I think at that point he walks the pitcher, you get someone up, and you yeah. say that's a big warning sign. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a couple runners on, and uh, the, you know the bases are loaded, and you know, uh, I think at that point you say. Before this gets out of hand, I'm going to go try and put this fire out and, and keep this playoff game close. Okay, uh, second uh, second game today starts at 3 p.m. Eastern time. That's between Tampa Bay and Boston. And uh, actually, um, w- both of these teams have uh, have free agents, players who are bound to be free agents after the season. Um, of course, we're doing the contract crowdsourcing at the moment, uh, in which we're asking readers uh, both to estimate what they uh, what they think uh, Mike Napoli or Stephen Drew might get uh, certainly Jacoby Ellsbury uh, is probably one of the most high profile free agents uh, of the uh, upcoming offseason. Um, and then we're asking them to to um, you know to share what they themselves where they a gym would give. But um, the the question came up and, and I'm curious about it is what do we know uh, the, uh, to what degree a good offseason can or uh, sorry a good playoff run. Uh, so, for example, if Mike Napoli uh, is absolutely bananas uh, during the during the playoffs, you know the Red Sox go to the World Series. Napoli's essentially the one who leads them there. Uh, what sort of effect can that have on a on a player's free agency? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've seen kind of the the October hero uh, get a nice little bump, and he certainly raises his profile. Uh, I think Angel Pagan last year probably helped himself a lot, get forty million dollars as a free agent, where probably wasn't going to get that before he played really well in October uh, and helped the Giants, you know, uh, uh, to October and, and carry through. So I think uh, it can help, but I think at the same time, general managers at this point have a pretty decent idea of what most of these guys are. And the guys who've reached free agency have obviously been in baseball for a long time. You have at least six years, generally more than that. Um, you know, I think uh, GMs are not going to drastically change their evaluation of a guy over a month. Okay. Um, all right. So the, the, that's all. That's just a question. It's uh, uh, the allow it, letting that series serve as non trade of that question. That's all I'm doing, Dave Cameron. All right. Well, okay. that was fast. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I, uh, it might be two questions here for the the Los Angeles uh, and it, uh, the Dodgers and Braves series, uh, which is um, <clears throat> will be the third game uh, for tonight, 6 p.m. That starts uh, Zach Greinke versus Mike Miner. My question concerns actually the um, uh, Atlanta's choice. Uh, for their playoff roster, and in, in particular the decision to leave Dan Ugla off of it, and it appears to replace him with Elliot Johnson. Yeah. Uh, is this uh, um, now Ugla had a rough season? Um, uh, some of that certainly was from BABIP or you know his batted ball play. Uh, we might say that his approach lends itself towards a deflated BABIP anyway. 
Uh, it also is curious. It doesn't necessarily seem that uh, Elliot Johnson is the answer for any team, let alone one trying to win a, uh, a divisional series. Yeah, I mean, Elliot Johnson has one skill. He's very good defensively. He doesn't hit at all, but he, you know what you're getting with Elliot Johnson. With Dan Ugla, it's definitely more of a question mark, uh, where you think, you know, based on his track record, he should be able to hit the ball over the wall occasionally and give you some offensive uh, production. I think the problem with Ugla is, from a scouting perspective, I think the Braves believe that his bat speed is gone and not coming back anytime soon. And there was a, uh, uh, a question at some point of, I believe... Ugly guy, his first extra base hit off a fastball over 95 miles an hour in, like, July. It was very late in the season. Uh, so I think that from the Braves' perspective, they might look at Ugly's track record and say, man, he should be good, but when we watch him, we think this guy can't help us. Okay, and so and so this has been what's informed it. So and, and is this another case, do you think? Um, I mean, Ugly's not necessarily – he's not a free agent this offseason, but we have seen in the past – those instances where teams uh, know more about their player than than basically anyone else does. Yeah, I mean, right. It doesn't mean that Dan Ugla can't fix himself, but the Braves have watched Ugla play for the last couple months, and, and I think they've seen the work he's tried to put in to fix himself. And if they just believe that his bat speed is completely gone at age 33, um, I think it's pretty likely that Ugla's played his last game in Atlanta. I think they're probably going to trade the rest of his contract this winter um, you know, they'll have to pick up almost all of it or a, a huge portion of it in order to move it. But I think Ugla's days in Atlanta are probably over. Uh, the other, uh, the other thing I, I was curious about with regard to that uh, Dodgers-Braves game from last night uh, has to do with Evan Gaddis. Yeah. Um, and it just, it seemed. Uh, um, I, I watched the condensed version of that game, but it seemed as though Evan Gaddis was in like a half of the clips, either because he was doing something um, helpful for his team. Uh, or like helpful taking, for the other team. Or helpful for the other team. <laughs> right. And uh, I guess this is this this the sort of player Gaddis is? That's kind of part A of the question. And part B is what is the to what degree does replacing essentially BJ Upton with Evan Gaddis in the outfield? Uh, how many runs do you think that's worth? Uh, I don't know per game per 150 games, whatever. I mean, I think Upton's an above-average center fielder. Gaddis is a well, well below-average outfielder, left fielder. So, I mean, you're probably looking at a 30 or 40 run difference over a full season between those two, maybe even more. Um, so, you know, if you factor that in per game, that's, you know, about a quarter of a run, a fifth of a run per game just on defense. So I don't think we can underestimate the uh, the sacrifice that the Braves chose to make to put Gaddis in the outfield instead of B.J. Upton. And that was a sort and that was on display last night, yeah, right? I mean, he dove absolutely. for a ball and he that he wasn't even close, yeah. right? And maybe and then, Justin Upton doesn't have to die for that ball. BJ Upton, yeah. I mean, if Justin Upton can play both corners at the same time, the Braves would be really good. Uh, but yes, if BJ Upton uh, would have caught that ball. Well, BJ Upton would have been playing center. Haywood would have been a corner. Um, it would have changed things dramatically. Uh, I think that was a pretty catchable ball that Gaddis missed on. But at the same time, um, you know, BJ Upton had a pretty terrible year at the plate. Uh, not that I agree with the decision to play Gattis over Upton, but it's not out of the question that even with his defense, Upton uh, still not a super valuable player this year. Yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, final. Oh yeah. The uh, yeah. Here we go. The final series. This is Detroit uh, and Oakland, and this game begins uh, whenever it begins at 9:30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, <clears throat> this starts off in the form of a question. Uh, okay, so I was looking, and over the past uh, three years, uh, we're, we're looking at players over the past three years. 
Uh, any player who's recorded over 170 plate appearances. That's our that's our population. That's our sample for this question. 170. 170 plate appearances. Yeah. It seems a very arbitrary minimum. Uh, that's it. That happens to be the latest research shows that after 170 plate appearances, home run rate uh, becomes some uh, stabilizes somewhat. That's why okay. I chose it. So it's right. about All 600 right. players, Dave Cameron. Right. Uh, over that time, uh, if you look at home run on contact, so that's essentially. Uh, you know, every plate appearance minus walks and strikeouts. I'm anticipating a Brandon Moss question. <laughs> well, okay. I was going to say, uh, two players have, uh, uh, only two players have crossed the 10% threshold home yeah. runs on contact. One of them is Chris Davis, who's the yeah. other one. And you, Brandon Moss. Yeah, Brandon Moss. Yeah. Um, well, you got the answer. How did you know the answer? Uh, Brandon Moss, uh, one of my favorite kind of uh, under the radar sluggers. I like Brandon Moss a lot. Do you do you think that he's the second most powerful hitter in the major leagues? No, I do not. I how think about, uh, how, about, how about like one of the most powerful against right-handed pitching? Yes, against right-handed pitching, the dude's kind of a monster. Yeah, uh, yeah. He he uh, he seems to start every game against right-handers for Oakland um, and uh, made a season out of it. I guess. Well, he's worth two wins and 500 plate appearances, but a lot of that is from is from his offense, and a lot of his offense is from his power. Yeah, right. I mean, Brandon Moss is a one-trick pony. Uh, and, you know, I'm not usually a huge fan of one-trick ponies, but I kind of like one-trick ponies that no one pays attention to, right? Like, Brandon Moss has the skill set that, you know, kind of gets players overrated. If he hits the ball really far and he hits a lot of home runs, and this is the kind of guy that, uh, you know, people throw a lot of money at and uh, to say, hey, this is our franchise player, we're building our lineup around him. But Brandon Moss, for the last, you know, year and a half, has been just absolutely mashing in Oakland, and no one's noticed. People are always like, ah, the A's don't have any real good power hitters. And it's like, well, Brandon Moss, pretty good power hitter. Doesn't Brandon Moss actually currently have the skill set that Ryan Howard is supposed to have? Basically, yes. Brandon <laughs> Moss is kind of like a West Coast Ryan Howard, just without all the hype. Okay, yeah. And the other thing is, just generally speaking, um, you say that uh, – that People will make certain comments about about this ace team, but what is their identity? I know that that is a that that's a that's a soft question, but in terms of it, it seems as though they derived a lot of their value this year, you know, the the majority of their war, uh, at least in terms of rankings go, came from their position players. They finished third by that measure, but they don't have any guys, I guess, besides Moss, who really cranked the ball, or at least who posted very high home run numbers. How are they? I guess how how are they succeeding? Yeah, I think if I was going to describe the A's in one sentence, it would be death by a thousand paper cuts. I mean, this is a team that has, you know, uh, tons and tons and tons of quality players, almost all of them flawed in some way, lots of platoon guys who can't hit same-handed pitching. Um, you know, Moss also can't play the field very well. Like, they have, you know, some pretty limited players who are good at one thing, and they piece them together every single day and say, ha, huh, well, against this specific pitcher, we've got nine guys who do really well against that pitcher, or we have, you know, eight defenders who play really well behind Bartolo Colon, and they mix and match a, a, a roster of flawed players that other teams didn't want, and I think realistically, Michael Lewis was a decade early. Like, if you wanted to write about Billy Bean and his genius in um, stealing players that no one else wanted, this is the team that you wanted. <laughs> like, this team doesn't have Jason Giambi and Tim Hudson and Barry, Zold- Barry Zito and Mark Mulder and, and Miguel Tejada. This is a team of cast-offs that the, the A's stole from everybody else and turned into a good team. Right, well, because before, right, it was... Uh, right, because you had Jason Giambi in place, you had those big three pitchers, you had Miguel yeah. Tejada... Those players were contributing the bulk of the war. Now you, it's the, now it's the castoffs yeah. who are who are doing that. 
their best player was, uh, you know, basically a throw-in prospect in the Rich Harden trade five years ago. Uh, converted catcher turned into a third baseman who had an MVP kind of season. Their best pitcher was, uh, 40 years old and suspended for steroid use last year and throws one pitch. I mean, you know, like, you just look at this, this roster. This is the island of misfit toys. How they turned this into a good team is kind of a miracle. Okay. All right. That's it. Uh, Dave Cameron, you've, we've done it. We've covered all four series. We have. Good what, job. When are we going to do this again? Maybe, uh, uh, I would, yeah, I would say Monday or Tuesday. I mean, we're, I think we normally podcast on Mondays anyway, so maybe Tuesday. All right. Well, sure. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's four games Monday, so we should have something to talk about Tuesday. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll be, I'll be here. Yeah, we, here is in Paris. Oh uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be ready for you in Paris. <laughs> right. All right, uh, that is uh, so. Thank you for joining us, Dave Cameron. Thank you. All right, that is Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been a brief brief er edition of Fangraphs Audio.